1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators?
0: Who knows where this is going to end up?
2: To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
0: This podcast is powered by ACAST.
2: How are you doing there? It's podcast time. Hope you're all well. The sun is out. It's smiling on us. People in the back gardens. Oh no, sorry. No one's in the back gardens because we're still locked down, aren't we?
0: <laughs> we Apparently we are.
2: <laughs> anyway, that was a slip of the tongue. How are you, my friend? I'm very good. I'm very good. I think you're, you're obsessed by Mars now. JM just said, Mars is the new Trump for you,
0: right? <laughs> it is a little bit, but hang on a second. Hang on. We said we'd come back to it. Remember we had a little bit of audio a couple of months ago? or a month ago whenever it was
2: yes and it wasn't audio at all it was actually the wind and <laughs> freaking Kalani Hill
0: but here's a real blast from Mars have a listen to this <laughs> that is the rover Perseverance jumping across the rocks but it actually, to me, it actually sounds like it's bin night on Mars.
2: <laughs> by, the, by the way, tonight is. Bin night. night. Yeah.
0: With the glad eye.
2: I tell you. <laughs> did you, uh, you know the, uh, that New Zealand band, what are they called? Credit House? No, no. They're, they're comedy guys, the oh, Condors.
0: Th- yeah, fly the Condors.
2: Yeah, they have a very good riff about bin night. You <laughs> know. Very good riff. Oh yes, bin night. Anyway. Uh, but,
0: but hang on a second. Let's just stay with space for a moment.
2: No, let's not stay. This is an economics podcast. Yeah, I know, but it's interesting
0: because they sent a case of Petrus wine. Now, Petrus is like about five grand a bottle. It's John's regular tipple on a Friday night. Yeah. Right? And they sent a case of it into space. To the Martians. Not to... To so- Martians with affectations. <laughs> but to the, the space station. And I went around the Earth how many times in a year? And then they brought it back just to see what do some experiments on it. Kind of thing Why? Yeah, exactly. Why? And why use Petrus? Why not use, you know, Piodor or something? Blossom Hill.
2: <laughs> it's stuff that we drink. It's madness. Madness. John is definitely it's it's midweek. Mars has got to him. The lockdown has got to him. And William Shatner was ninety last week. Okay, enough <laughs> of your bloody Star Trek shite, okay?
0: <laughs> James T. Kirk, man, this is unbelievable. <laughs> okay, bring it back down, Turk. Bring it back down to Earth.
2: Oh, I like the way you do that. We're going to talk about globalization with Peter Frankopan in a couple of minutes, because we're going to talk about the significance of the Suez Canal. Obviously, after the boat uh, blocked the Suez Canal. Your but Vespa all, was uh, stuck uh, on uh, the Vespa, system. exactly. Which still hasn't arrived yet, but it's on the island. And and just globalization, trade, the effect of China, what's going on, and just the general fragility of what we assume to be our reality yeah you know
0: that's that's the key well that's that's what the whole ever given highlight
2: yeah and it's that idea that you know we're, we're assuming a way and Peter's very interested in this and Taleb and all those guys they're, they're you know the tail risk they call it what is the risk that what we assume to be robust is actually very fragile mm. and we see this in financial markets all the time I, I, we see this a lot in financial markets but we also see it in, 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 in the world and again you have to go back to you know Evolution, adaptive species—all these interesting ideas that you rarely hear about in economics—to get mm. a to get a handle on that.
0: So that's that's coming up now. In two sex All right, Nice. Well, I've been on the space vibe this week. Clearly, um, what have you been on?
2: I have been on the graveyard vibe. You know, I, I'm a I'm a big lover of a graveyard.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, they are. i
2: would actually yeah. one of the most fascinating. If you've any, if have any Liverpool listeners, the physically, Fazakli is is an area. It doesn't sound like that in Liverpool, right? It's a suburb of Liverpool. Yeah, Fazakli, right. The graveyard there is phenomenally interesting to see who came, settled, lived and died in one of the most enterprising port cities in the world, which was Liverpool. We kind of forget now that Liverpool was the centre of the world for Mm. a long time. So you've Chinese, you've Irish, you've Scottish, you've Jewish, you've Germans. The names are amazing, right? As well as the English names. Yeah, yeah. But I... Dean's Grange Cemetery, John.
0: I have a few people in I there. I have a
2: few people there. And I'm doing a bit of research on the role of bicycles in the feminist movement in the mm-hmm. 1890s. It's a very okay. strange The bicycle was essential for the suffragette movement. Right. And I'll explain that in a second. However, up where my granny, and I assume some of your family are buried up there as well, beside my granny's grave mm-hmm. is the grave of a man called John Dunlop. And John Dunlop tires
0: exactly. Really,
2: John Dunlop was a vet vet and Dan Patrick, who figured out that if he could put air in tires, that they'd be much much smoother and they would the bikes would go much quicker. Yeah, and he did, and he's buried up there beside. Besides Sadie Nicholson my Granny, that's a great name. Isn't it? <laughs> Sadie Nicholson, <laughs> that's a brilliant name. Anyway, but she's Scottish, you know. And Dunlop yep. was Scottish. They're all there's this, obviously a little Scottish ghetto yeah, up there yeah, yeah, in But I'm so I'm interested about that. I'm going to try and tie it together in a chapter in this new thing. Do you know? Do
0: you know? I remember my very first bike, tiny little bike, and I had solid rubber tires.
2: Ooh, soreness. Oh, well. Do you know? Do you know? Do you know what bikes were called initially? Bone shakers, yes, yeah, before yeah, yeah. the rubber tires. But anyway, I want to go Newman College, Cambridge, eighteen hundred and ninety-seven. Okay, okay. An effigy of a woman on a bicycle is thrown at the window of top of Newman College. She is then beheaded, and the effigy is burned. Why is this? Tell me. It was a riot by male students against introducing women into Cambridge University. Think wow. about
0: this, right? Wow! Wow! And the
2: reason, and women didn't get a degree from Cambridge for fifty years later. Do you know that they could go? Women could go to college, but they couldn't get a wouldn't degree. be conferred. They why? Wouldn't be conferred because it was a male-dominated, misogynist. But why would they system. let
0: them in then, in the first place?
2: Kind of for optics, right? Right. But in eighteen ninety-seven, the key vote was in the Cambridge Union. As to whether women should be allowed in. <clears throat> and it prompted this massive misogynistic backlash. Yeah. Okay. But the reason they burnt the effigy of the woman on a bike was the bikes were associated with the suffragette movement. Why? Because women, up until the invention of bikes, right, were completely cloistered. They couldn't go out in public. Yeah. yeah. They rarely went out in public. And if they did, they were chaperoned. The bike arrives and women are liberated. And there's a huge women's liberation bike clubs. The whole suffragette movement is identified with the bicycle. So I'm writing a chapter on the, and it's fascinating, there were 52 bike manufacturers in Dublin in the 1890s. Really? 52, right? There was a bike boom. There was a stock market speculation in bike shares. There was, there was. (laughs) Did it crash? Yeah, and then it crashed. It crashed It crashed just around the turn of the century. Right, and okay. it was a phenomenal thing. So I'm, I'm deep in mad research, but it's really interesting stuff because you're putting together. So there I was, in the granny's grave. Yeah. And I said, eh, this Dunlop guy, Dunlop was the original Dunlop family. Yeah. Then we're into suffragettes. Then we're into bikes. Then we're into share the whole thing. Fantastic. The chapter stuff. will be brilliant when it's done. Yeah. But it's yeah, going to yeah. be. We're talking to Peter Frank minute about what's like writing books, and it is hard stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. But yeah.
2: just watch this face. Excellent. Suffragettes, feminism and bicycles. And of course, you'll drip feed that as we go along the podcast. I will (laughs) drip feed it as as we go along. There's some great, great stories on on bicycles and and suffragettes. And the maybe decline of British manufacturing can be seen as a microcosm. If you look at what happened, they were eventually destroyed by German and French bikes. The Brits were preeminent yeah, in bike rally
0: and all those. Yeah,
2: Coventry was the main place, mm. but Dublin had its own stock market, and there was lots of. It's a bit like the Davy shit. There was lots of insider trading and bike shares. <laughs> Same carry on, peddling shares. Pe- oh! <laughs> we're just talking about writing the books, and Peter Frankopan makes the point that when you're writing a book, it's actually like being at the bottom of a mountain. That has destroyed and taken every climber that's ever tried to reach the summit. Because it's like this, idea, you're doing this mad research. And you think is, is this going to go anywhere? Where is this yeah, going it's to go? Daunting times. Yeah, it's daunting. But a young man who has climbed Everest is oh. a young man called Louis Evers. And Louis Evers is a big fan of the podcast. Apparently, it's his birthday this week. Happy birthday, Louis! Give me. You sound
0: sh- like Ronan Collins. <laughs>
2: All right, look, listen, Louis, big up to you. Apparently, you're a big fan, right? But more importantly, you've climbed Everest, which is really impressive. Louis apparently works in Enterprise Ireland. Enjoy the podcast, enjoy the strolls around Ranelagh in the lockdown, and we'll talk to you soon. So that's Louis Evers. Happy birthday, Louis. It's our new job as mid morning radio presenter. Exactly, exactly. Perfect. RTE Gold. It's about our standard. It's about our age, isn't it? <laughs> yes, rather. <laughs> Now, of course, the big news, John, this week is that our boat. Yeah, the old tugs. The old tugs. They worked, right? So the Suez Canal is now going to be open quite soon. It's going to be flowing again probably in the next couple of days. Yeah. But the significance of it, of Suez itself, of not just the canal, the trade, the history. Fascinating story. Let's go and talk to Peter Frankopan man who penned, I would say, one of the best history books I've read in years, The Silk Roads. Brilliant. Yeah, I, I listened to
0: that on Audible. Brilliant. Yeah. Stuff.
2: He's an old mate. He's in Oxford. Let's have a chat. To Peter. I have on the line an old mate, a fantastic historian, great fun, a man who I left at the Dorkey Book Festival with the Booker Prize winner Richard Flanagan, and the two of them headed off. They managed to get a lock-in in Dalkey, and it was a whiskey lock in, I remember,
1: from details. Peter Frankenman, how are you? Very good. I've I've tried to, to put that one back into the shadows because uh, I, I had quite an early flight the next day as well. But it was a great evening with with Richard. You you have such a great group who always gather in, in Dulkey. So I'm I'm waiting for the pandemic to pass so I can come back, hopefully.
2: Well, listen, you know, you're 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 definitely we're we're we're, we're trying to figure out what to do this year, but it'll all be a bit remote, but we'll see. However. When the pandemic passes, we are going to have a proper a proper session, an amazing session. Now, listen, Peter, I want to talk to you about Suez Canal. Nobody thought about it at all, at all, at all, at all, until about two weeks ago. What is the significance of the Suez Canal?
1: Uh, well, Suez Canal matters a lot if you are European. Um, it matters a lot if you're shipping goods. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't matter to a large part of the world. It doesn't make any difference to the Americas in particular, but it's a a small body of water that links the Mediterranean through to uh, eventually the Indian Ocean and beyond. So if you're part of the consumption demographic, you would buy stuff. Chances are you're buying clothes, materials from South Asia, manufactured goods in China. And so it's a very important conduit for goods. And the real significance is that it's about a 10-day quicker sale than going around the southern tip of Africa. So it means that things move quicker, that means they move cheaper. That means they reach people faster, and that means that the Suez Canal is a very important part of globalised networks of trade and communication.
2: And tell us, give us the history of. Come on, give us, let's let's go back. Where you know, give me the history of the Suez Canal.
1: Well, the, the deep history is that you know, since human beings could could write, they've been commenting and noticing that this is a very important, it's a very narrow strip of water, a uh, strip of land rather that connects the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. And we sort of, we we in the modern world, we tend to think only the Suez Canal in connection with the kind of 19th to 20th century and Suez crisis and so on. But the Red Sea was a really important way in which goods reached the Mediterranean two, three, four thousand years ago. And we know that because there are ports all dotted up both sides of the Red Sea and because we know that the goods are being written about that arriving from India, for example, into the Roman Empire. More than 2,000 years ago as well, so we have r- reports and records that the, the Pharaohs built some kind of water system that connected the Red Sea, and then Darius, King Darius of Persia, who was a kind of Donald Trump-like, you know, couldn't help talking about how fantastic he was and putting up inscriptions everywhere, which is you know, not a bad thing for rulers to do. You know, it's a separate separate podcast, I guess, but you know, how do you celebrate when you're doing a good job? In the West today, you know, you don't put up statues of yourself. You know, you you try and do the false modesty. Yeah. But anyway, Darius wasn't like that at all. He put up inscriptions that said, "Look, uh, people said this couldn't be done, but here I am. I did it, and I've connected. And now the sea starts. Everything starts and and ends with me." And and because we live in a world of climate change, we, we sort of we think that climate change is new. But you know, as we know, we've spoken about this before. Big new project I'm working on. Uh, you know, global climates have changed a lot in the past as well, and sea levels both Mediterranean and the Red Sea, are not today what they were two or 3,000 years ago. and There are all sorts of reasons why. And so we know that there were connections that allowed goods to pass through uh, from the Med to the Red Sea in the past. About a 1,000 years ago, one of the caliphs, one of the heads of the Arab world, the Muslim world, rather, Al-Hakim, who was famously mad, or said to be mad, which means he didn't have the right friends, I guess.
2: Yeah, Um, I didn't have good guys uh, writing about him later on.
1: Yeah, and the big problem, as, as I think you all know, looking at, um, at the Suez Canal, is it's surrounded by sand. And so it has to be dredged often, and it's not structurally always secure. And combined with dry periods, combined with technical problems, the investment required, things go wrong. So the Suez Canal, as we kind of think about it today, was built in the 19th century. But there've been, you know, connections that a long, long time ago, and big, grandiose plans to make bigger canals, wider, etc., dating back hundreds of years, thousands of years, partly because of those efficiencies of, of speed. And those speeds are important, for, like I said, for goods, but they're important for military connections too. I means you can deploy ships particularly. I mean, but we, we sort of also slightly need to take a reset because we sort of assume that without the Suez Canal, trade isn't possible. But, you know, it's not that hard to walk, right? It's not that hard to load things onto donkeys. It's not that hard to put things onto trains. But these big ships today, they carry 20,000 containers. And that's what makes this week so profoundly important in things being blocked because it's the scale of goods that passes through. So things have found ways of, of, uh, you know, like water through cracks. People always find the most efficient, quickest, cheapest, and safest ways to get from A to B and get goods from A to B. And people in the past did that just like we do today.
2: Now, Pete, I want to bring you, people will know the Silk Roads. The second book after, the new Silk Roads, which I devoured last year, is really about the trade on the old Silk Roads between Europe and Asia, and particularly between Central Asia and Europe and China, etc. Give me a sense of the scale of the trade we're talking about between, let's say, China and Europe going through the old Silk Roads. And then I want to chat to you about the the Belt and Road Initiative.
1: Well, I mean, it's huge. You know, almost everything we buy is made in another part of the world. I mean, uh, you know, there are some rare occasional success stories you know, baby milk in Ireland is huge in China. There was a big health scandal in China a few years ago, where the head of the uh, food monitoring body was was executed for his negligence. That's what they did. Yeah, do no, you, I remember that. If you get things wrong, and so there's a there's a real asymmetry in global trade, which is that that there are things that we make in in Europe, but there are many more things that are made in in China, in Southeast Asia, in Sub-Saharan Africa, and in and in South Asia that we, we don't make here. And we don't do it because it's cheaper to make them in other parts of the world. And I think we're just at a, a sort of, maybe not a crisis point, but we're at a question point, I guess, about where does that leave us with the, in things like national security? Where does that leave us with supply chains? If, if people down the other end either block or because there's a pandemic, factories shut, You know, how do we get things from A to B? And we, we've all got used, I think, to seeing supermarkets f- filled with plants and crops and goods that, that aren't made locally and and we assume that they just keep on arriving we can buy you know you can buy ripe strawberries in january in the middle of dublin and that's not the natural way and that's dependent on all these global connections working and fitting into place and you know trade requires buyers and sellers to be equally happy but over the last 30 years the shift of of trade from um and just the the rise i guess of other of other countries particularly in asia has been profound so china's economy was worth about a trillion dollars 20 years ago and now it's worth about 15 trillion dollars and the speed and yeah. rapidity of that growth is, is one of the reasons why there's a lot of um bite points right now around how do we engage on equal terms with people whose political systems don't look and feel like ours and particularly who don't want theirs to look and feel like ours you know how do we, how do we navigate a way through through dealing with people who have different ways of dealing with minorities different ways of dealing with freedoms and is there a way of taking the high ground and continuing to to trade at the cheapest possible prices. So you know it, the the big story in the last 3 decades of course has been primarily China but it's also been about very very other major economies in the region. So I mean, you know, 65% of the world's population live east of Istanbul, which is a huge amount and uh, as well in that region east of Istanbul, it's about 70% of global gas, global oil, six, 70% of wheat, 85% of rice. So you know we 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 require a good way of being able to negotiate and and trade, but it's not it's not these things aren't easy.
2: No, they're not. Can you explain to me the the, the Belt and Road Initiative, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative? What is it? How big is it? And where is it now? Where has it got to?
1: Well, it depends. It depends slightly. You know how long an answer you want. I mean, the, in 2013, Xi Jinping, the president of China, announced that he was going to oversee a massive program of reconnecting. Um, ancient networks, and those were maritime and overland. And, you know, we we have quite a romanticised idea, I think, about what the Silk Roads are. We sort of think that they're an exotic series of places where, you know, camels and caravans and Marco Polo brought back pasta. But, you know, these are global stories, how we've bought and sold goods to each other and how people who have money in one part of the world buy things that they want that come from other parts of the world, whether that's, yeah. you know, emeralds and, and jewels, whether that's foods, whether that, and also ideas spread too. So the Silk Road, is, is a, it's it's helpful in some ways and it's not helpful in others. You know, there are no roads. There was no sort of, you know, series of motorways that like we understand them with like, you start here and you stop there. It's a sort of loose catch to just talk about how people have connected with each other. And the Chinese were trying to say at the time, uh, look, when europe has dealt with other parts of the world they've colonized they've enslaved they've extracted what we're going to do is turn up and, and work as partners investing in um you know infrastructure in resources etc uh, etc et and you know the problem with that it's sometimes things that can be too good to be true so there are key areas of particular interest to china uh, its own energy needs its environmental challenges its uh, requirements of opening up new markets, you know. So right today, you know, about six percent of households in India own a vacuum cleaner. And that's hundreds of millions of new units you can ship if you're a vacuuming company in yeah. China. So there are all sorts of ways in which China has its own vested interests in trying to collaborate. But you know it was also a sort of foreign policy blueprint to say we are an emerging global superpower and we want to work out how to deal with other people in our neighborhoods. And maybe we as a you know people living in the continent of Asia or people near to China should find a way of looking after our own backyard. And it's been hugely controversial. It's been very problematic. There have been lots of projects that have got into trouble, always for slightly different reasons. The way in which it's funded is much more opaque than the way that we understand things today. Uh, we've got a lot more experience, I think, in the West of dealing with development and international development projects because you know we've been doing this for a long time, trying to support other parts of the world, sometimes, again, with hits and misses. But there's been a real pushback because people have, Understood the Belt and Road to be a sort of blueprint to take over the world. Yeah. So, right now, in the United States in particular, under Trump, but also under Biden, there's been a lot of noise about that this week, too. It's about trying to pr- produce either pushback or new alternatives. So, Biden this week has announced that the US is going to develop its own version of a Belt and Road policy. And, you know, my friends who work in the State Department, my friends who work in this will tell you both of these two things are not quite true. So, the, the Chinese, they didn't start the Silk Road. And the Belt and Road with Xi Jinping in 2013. This has been going on for decades beforehand. Uh, it was given proper fancy letterheads and proper full-on government endorsement. But you know, that those processes have been going a long time. And, you know, likewise, the US have been looking at how to reconnect the Silk Roads since before 9-11, you know, long time before yeah, of that of, of the post-Soviet world, of trying to recognize that the countries that, you know, the Marshall Plan had worked quite well in Europe. How does a rebuild from the ex-USSR? How does that look and work? So, so Belt and Road is, is very controversial, partly because we don't really understand China very well. And, and it doesn't help in of that China is not very good at explaining itself on a global stage. And we're in a particular phase right now where China feels it shouldn't have to explain itself. So it's making very aggressive statements, both within its own borders. You know, this morning news about new policies on the government in Hong Kong, the parliament in Hong Kong, uh, which to Westerners look repressive, autocratic, and yep. chaotic. And I yep. think that's not very helpful for the world we're living in right now.
2: I'm going to come back on a later podcast for you and myself We i going to talk about China. I just want to talk to you before we go on Turkey because Turkey is going through, I mean, we're going from the Suez, but clearly Turkey is a key player in East-West relations, a key player in the Silk Road. Erdogan fired his central bank governor there the other day. The, the lira is in free fall, the economy. What do you think is going on in Turkey? because it's a huge country that we know very little about.
1: Well, Turkey has the fastest expanding footprint in Africa of any nation, right? We don't look at, we, you know, we look at Istanbul, we look at the markets, we look at the, the area around Erdogan, but Turkey's biggest embassy in the world today is in Somalia. You know, Turkey's investing enormously- I no idea. So Turkey's investing enormously in military and infrastructure, very heavily involved in Libya, very heavily involved in North Africa, and increasingly in sub-Saharan Africa as well. And you know, won't surprise you. Know Turkey also has made quite a lot of running in Central Asia, where there are common ties of culture, language, etc., and history that, that that are being heavily accentuated by Erdogan. So there, there's a real disconnect. So Turkey in freefall on the one hand, again repression, treatment of the minorities, you know, rising rhetoric and autocracy. But on the other hand, you know, quite a developed, quite you know, military defense and foreign policy plan that's being implemented quite successfully in lots of parts of the world. And, you know, we, I think we're all fast asleep thinking that if we put our trust in the European Union, if you're Irish or in our government here, if you're in the UK and we're out of the EU, of thinking that, well, you know, it doesn't really affect us that much. And presumably there are clever people behind the scenes who've got our plan being worked out. And, you know, I think we we have a real challenge to sit and wake up because since the Cold War ended, we've spoken about this before, you know, that, that when the Cold War ended, I think we all just assumed that that world of liberal democracy had won, and people would want to become more like us, and we've all benefited of the, these lower prices, generally. But you know that 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 suddenly reminds us that we that we can have real fragilities, and and I think if 2020 and 2021 are significant for historians one day, you know it won't just be about pandemic and about the um, closure, it'll be about the fact that you know the the flap of a butterfly's wings or a bat's wings. Mm-hmm. Or a single ship running aground suddenly gets people saying globalization's finished. And for, for two tiny small events, magnifying those kind of events and understanding the fragilities of the system is really important. Historians like me and you know, our mutual friend Nassim Taleb, you know, are, are obsessive about, about how risk is poorly understood because it's much more comfortable lying in bed every day and thinking other people are are working this stuff out. And to realise that one boat running aground, and suddenly, suddenly it's costing four hundred million dollars of trade per hour, right? That that boat was stuck. Wow! Um, you know that there are very significant compressions, and it's it's really worth our while understanding those. A lot of the work that I do right now is about working out those risk points and where we're vulnerable in ways that we don't sort of think and realise. Because you know it's very easy to read the newspapers and think, well, China's doing this with. It's you know with this Muslim population in Xinjiang, Biden's doing this over here on this side of the world, and Black Lives Matters. You know that's you know, we've all got our own things to be worrying about, but you know there are a lot of moving pieces, and it's great being able to follow them, but it requires it requires quite a lot of dedication and work to to be constantly looking through the headlines into into the reality and the substance.
2: Yeah, and and, and I mean you're you're right. I mean Talib's whole not whole because you can't reduce Talib to anything because he's brain is so extraordinary, but his ideas, fragility, anti-fragility, becoming robust in the face of events, adapting, evolution, all those good things that unfortunately economics never talks about, actually ever talks about because it wants to have, as you know, direct relationships between things that make sense and that can quantify and can be put in a little box. And that is not the case. Finally, before you go, just give me a sneak preview and give the listeners a sneak preview of the new the new Magnus Opus.
1: Oh I feel like I'm sort of climbing a mountain that you know is you know shouldn't you know you know claims the lives of everybody who tries to climb it you know and and that I, the good news is that that's, I know how it, how it feels when you're doing something that's interesting and exciting I'm trying to look at how how humans have been have thought about the environment and about climate how they've reacted to it how they've shaped it and changed it you know since since the beginning of history and you know of course that has uh, some applications for today's world too so I'm stuck at the moment um about 3000 BC uh, in the middle of Mesopotamia and in northwestern China and in and in what's now Niger and Mali. So it's going to be really exciting. I mean, I'm 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 about three quarters of the way through. I'm hoping I'm going to finish it later this summer. So it'll come out with any luck next year. But it's been a monster to try to wrestle to the ground. And, and I know because you write books too very successfully, David, that the, the struggle is a joy, really. It's painful. And, you know, it's really, it's, it's when you think that you're going to win that it keeps you going. The problem is it takes a while to get to that and you think you're being <laughs> suffocated. So I think I'm over that, that worst bit, but there's still quite a lot to do.
2: Tell so me about this and we'll share a couple of war stories over a pint. But Peter, as always, thank you
1: so much. Pleasure. Thanks, David.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
0: I thought the best one of the best things that Peter said there was that Darius was the trump of his day. I love it. Yeah,
2: bragging about everything, sticking his name up everywhere. I know. Well, look, (laughs) I'm actually with most the vast majority of emperors. I mean, that was that was par for the course in the old days. Yeah, and he's right about the kind of fake modesty now. You know, it wasn't me; it was the team. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah.
0: (laughs) But come here. uh, I'm here. More seriously, we started talking about this a little bit last week about supply chains. Yeah. And you'd made the point before about we need to shorten supply chains. Because oh, we might, of,
2: we might shorten them. We might because they're fragile.
0: They're very fragile. And the whole thing in the Suez kind of sums that up. That yeah. it, was, it is so fragile. It is that kind of, you know, the butterfly effect. Little things happen and they have enormous effects and repercussions throughout the world. Well,
2: John, you know, what we've always done, even at the start of the podcast, you remember I've been talking about evolutionary economics, mm. right? That I actually, yeah. I see the economy as an evolutionary organism, right? And in the same way, in the ecosystem, as you'll know from the environmental movement of a, a rainforest, tiny little adaptations yeah. on the ground can have profound impacts for the vegetation miles and miles yes. away. Yeah, on the earth. Yeah. So, I look at the economy in in a similar way, that there there are these innate fragilities and you tinker with them at your peril. Or at least if you're going to have a massively integrated, globalised world, be aware of what's going on. Be aware of the choke points that are there. Now, the Suez is one of the choke points. What is really endlessly fascinating for me is what Peter talks about and all these ancient historians, the fact that humans were trading Enormous amounts of goods mm. between, for example, India and the Roman Empire, two thousand, two and a half thousand years ago, and that economics is not a modern concept. You no, know economics feels modern. Yeah, You'd like to say, oh, this is something, but we've been doing it for years. In fact, the single biggest discovery of Roman coins outside of the Mediterranean Basin is in Kerala, oh right, in India, southern right? India, yeah, yeah, and the the Tamils were the traders. You know the Tamil Tigers who got caught eventually in Sri Lanka? Yeah. And were actually, I think there was a genocide there, pretty nasty genocide yeah. against the Tamils, right? But the Tamils were the trading empire of southern India. And they were trading all around southern India. If you think of India is a perfect place for trade, because it's a big peninsula that sticks out yeah. into two of the most important seas in the world. Okay, you've got the Indian Ocean, of course, then you've got the Red Sea, you've got the Gulf, all that area. And of course you have... The South China Sea is yeah. is related, and it's linked through the Straits of Malacca. All these great stuff, right? So all this stuff is coming from all over the world, yeah. 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 And of course, what well, the Indians were terrible men for gold. They loved a bit of gold. They still yeah. do, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And but they, they were always doing. They were trading with the Romans. Pliny was really pissed off. Okay, Pliny the Elder. Was Pliny. Pliny was in, is a the, the, the Elder is a Roman scribe and historian. He's a great fellow. He was writing. Great books about about contemporary Rome. Yeah. Uh, very, very good. If you're into this sort of stuff, he's the man, he's the documenter of Pompeii. Oh,
0: okay, right. Yeah. But
2: Pliny was really pissed off because what happened was the Indians, and they're still at it, right? They would only accept gold in lieu of trade. Right. But the way in which the old global money supply worked was that the gold should circulate around. So the Indians get the gold, and then they spend it. Yeah, And sure. then the gold goes back to somebody else. Yeah. But they yeah. never spent it. right? Right. They never spent, they hoarded the stuff. So Pliny was pissed off. He was trying to figure out global money supply at the time, but he couldn't get his head around it. But he knew that the Indians were basically hoarding the gold. The gold was actually staying in India. And then it was creating a deflationary impact in Rome.
0: Right. Because there wasn't enough
2: gold to go around. So they couldn't, they think there wasn't enough money. So that's all the mad stuff. But what I, that's the economic history, but I find endlessly fascinating is these supply chains have eliminated traditional recessions. And I think that's the huge change. Oh, explain that. So a recession, if you go back to economics, if you're doing economics in college, right? Mm. One of the reasons that recessions are tragic, okay, or historically have been tragic, is they persist for a long time. That when demand suddenly falls, it takes a long, long time, for example, for the associated supply to be bought away. So basically, I'll tell you what happens. Before we had global supply chains and this just-in-time supply, yeah. so you, 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 you go now and you t- type into Amazon, I want a Vespa helmet, yeah, which is yeah. what I've been looking at, one, one of those, those Italian stylish ones. You know? <laughs> with the goggles, I hope. Now, of course, with of the goggles, right? But you do it right. And you don't really think, right? So that's just-in-time. Now, what actually happened in all GDP forecasting, this is really nerdy stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. There is an element of stocks, right? That basically the stocks are the supply that you have built, but you haven't sold yet. Right. Okay. So in the 1970s, for example, it was regularly to see, if you look back at old photographs of the way they reported recessions in the 1970s, mm. what you would what you would have, let's say, would be Birmingham or somewhere in England, right? And you would have a sea, literally five or six football pitches full of unsold Range Rovers, right, or minis. Oh, right. You might remember this, right? So what basically is manufacturing was based on the following. You built up stocks and you associated those stocks with sales, but they hadn't been sold yet. Yeah. But you booked them as sales, right? So this is how the old economic accounting was done. Right. Right. And what happened in in a recession was if you get a sudden shock, like an oil shock you got in the 70s, right, and demand stops, the reason the recession goes on so long is because even as the economy begins to recover, there's so much overhanging stock that has to be sold before you can start new oh, production. Right. Okay. That in actual fact, the recession could go on for two or three years.
0: Right. Okay.
2: And so what's been really intriguing me over the years is why has that stopped? Why are recessions are n- why are recessions not associated with manufacturing anymore? Right. They used to be always manufacturing. Yeah. And recessions would be would be a let's say a sudden shock to the economy. Demand would fall. Then the manufacturing sector wouldn't recover for three or four years. Because they had all these overhanging stock. Right, okay. Now, supply chains have completely changed that. So because you now have just-in-time supply chains from all over the world, there is no stock. So factories are actually prompted to, do you know it's the Zara model? You know Zara, the fashion, right? Look where we're going, from plenty to Zara, John. So Zara is a fantastically brilliant case study of a retailer that's destroying everything around it. Right. Because it has an amazing supply chain management, right? So in Zara, if one of their Zara products, like, like a girl's blouse yeah. or a T-shirt, isn't selling, they cut it straight away. They go straight back to Spain. They say, that's not selling. Cut it, right? So right. they have no stock. Right. So okay. Zara always reacted to very, very famous case studies is the. That- mm. Do you remember
0: in the eighties we had the Butter Mountain and the the, exactly the same Wine Lake? and All that sort of stuff. stuff.
2: So that's all that's all stocks. So when I was doing years ago, when I was doing GDP forecasting, even in investment banking for things, you'd have this thing called the stock, right? Mm. And that would would actually allow economists who couldn't figure out what was happening to actually explain away what they were wrong. Oh, it's just a bit stocks going down, right? My model works; it's just the stocks, right? But now that's all gone. So recessions now, recessions in the past used to be a phenomenon of manufacturing industry. They are no longer that. Recessions now are almost exclusively the wages of credit growth and too much lending and borrowing. So basically the economy has gone. We don't have, in the old days, we'd have a thing called the economic cycle, right, which was a a largely production-driven idea. Right now we have what I would call the credit cycle. The credit cycle is the only important thing. Because the credit cycle actually determines whether the economy grows or not, and whether the economy collapses or not. And the reason this is, is that the shift from East to West, so we, our manufacturing has shifted from Europe to Asia in the last 40 years. That has meant that our production functions in Europe and America are much less sensitive to underlying manufacturing, conditions. But what has happened in tandem with this is the revolutionary expansion of the banking system in the last 40 years. So our economies have become credit-driven economies. Mm. Asian economies are production-driven. What the Asians have done is they've fine-tuned production to such an extent that they don't suffer recession. Look at China. After this pandemic, what happened in China? Mm. Nothing. So their supply chains were reacted so quickly to COVID.
0: But is that a function of globalisation? Like, for instance, you were talking about the Range Rovers in Birmingham. Yeah. And so you had this Thousands going, of them, yeah. yeah. Thousands yet to be sold. But, but globalisation wasn't such a thing exactly. back then. So if there was a global market, that stock would have been gone to China, to South America, to Africa. So they weren't relying on the buying power of the local economy.
2: Well, that's one way of looking at it because you can say that, you know, the global economy has then given you so many nodes of demand. Yeah. One node of demand gets hit by a shock. You've got other people. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is definitely one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is again, another thing I want to talk about is how essential information is in economics. You know, Mm. information is everything. Right, and what we've seen over the last twenty years has been an explosion in the availability of information in the production process. Right, so the reason you had stocks and you overbuilt and you overproduced was you didn't have any really accurate information coming up from the consumer. Right, yeah. it took a long time for consumers to actually indicate we don't want to buy this Range Rover, we want to buy this Mini, mm. we would prefer the the old Toyota Corolla. Yeah, the, the Datsun. Do you remember the Datsuns? I do. There was an invasion of Datsuns when we were kids. You know, <laughs> everyone had a Datsun, right? They went from everyone having everyone having a Morris Minor yeah, to everyone Austin having a Datsun. Princesses. Your dad, hey, ah, oh, the classy. <laughs> it was a classy. It was probably the heaviest car. The Hillman Hunter was the other one. My dad, my dad used only buy things from England, right? Yeah. It's crazy, it was like real old school. <laughs> and the Hillman Hunter used to never started. We the McWilliams family, by yeah. the way, the McWilliams family spent, I'd say, half the winter. Of the late 70s, pushing the Hillman Hunter down the road to get it started in the cold.
0: Right? And it was a beige one of Beige, best.
2: yeah, kind of orangey beige Hillman Hunter. It was fantastic things. But I do remember, being everyone's, lo- look, everyone be lugged out of bed. And it was like, a, it was kind of, a, it, was a, it was an issue on the road. People come out and help you. Like, it was like, it was like bowling alone. It was like socially it was yeah, like yeah. A social jelly nation it was, How, look, it was looking like you were at the top of the hill. Exactly. push it down. How to get the McWilliams's car. Moving between any morning between late October and early March.
0: I used to look out my window and go, nah.
2: (laughs) But to come back, so the global supply chains have eradicated the supply source of recessions. And this is really critically important because it means that recessions then are caused by something else. Yeah. They're not caused by mistakes in manufacturing. And the reason they're not caused by mistakes in manufacturing anymore is that the information flow from the consumer to the producer is incredibly accurate. The great example being Amazon. I want something, I, I tell them. Yeah. I tell them what I want, where I want it, where I want it delivered, yeah. what age I am, Yeah, They have everything. They're the whole, they've got me profiled. And that's a positive and a negative we can talk about yeah, from, yeah. from the information age. But what it's done to economics is it means that economics now... Is a credit concept. It's a banking concept. It's a money concept. And in the same way as money used to be that important, okay, because most trade, certainly in the middle middle ages, was done basically on tick with each other. You'd mm. do a deal with something, and then you'd clear the decks every two or three years, right? You say, Well, you have actually owe me right now. Money, credit, banking, markets, finance are much more important than manufacturing. And the reason they are is because the global supply chains are now so efficient. But the efficiency, and this is, comes back, and we'll probably end here, John, the efficiency obscures the fragility. Because when things are efficient, right. yeah. you know, you think, oh, this is all cool. Mm. But there are so many interlinking logistical networks at play going on all the time. I mean, if you if you could only see, if you could only visualize the earth through, let's say, for example, the journey of an iPhone. Where does it start? How many bits come from where? Where Where does it go? How does it go? You know, years ago, I did a a TV program for Australian television, which was brilliant because the Aussies are just great fun to work with. Mm -hmm. But we started in a place called Port Headland, which is in the Pilbara. The Pilbara is the mine of Australia. You know, Western Australia is just a big ore mine. Everything, everything is under the ground there. And we followed the ore to a Chinese port called Nimbo, which nice. is a massive port just south of Shanghai. And then we followed that and we followed how it was smelted into the iron and how it was then made. So the idea is we're trying to follow yeah. you know, minerals yeah. out of the Australian ground. And Again, where they end up. Yeah. Where they end up. Mm. And it was, it was a, fast, a really, really interesting documentary, but it, it got me thinking of how, to, how you, how you visualise the economy and how you visualize the economy, it's looks like this crazy spider web of very fragile networks. I don't think I've ever seen that one. Is it on YouTube somewhere? It's probably on YouTube. Yeah, I'll, I'll have a look for it. Yeah. And, uh, but it's the, it's the fragility of the networks that is exactly what we're talking about. And that brings us back to our butterfly wing. Mm. That when something small happens far away, The ramifications in our lives can be instantaneous, momentous, and catch us completely by surprise.
0: And I I suppose one of the key places that these events happen
2: originate in China. You're absolutely right. And China is the workshop of the world. You know, they used to call Lancashire the workshop of the world. China is now the workshop of the world. And next week, we're going to focus on China. We're going to go to Taiwan because that's the epicentre. Yeah. Because the Chinese are rattling sabers over Taiwan right now in a way they've never done before. So, Mm. we're going to go to Taiwan. We're going to do a whole podcast focusing on China. Pete kind of set it up there, talking about China. We'll go a little bit deeper next week. Brilliant. See you then. Now, why I have you there again, why not use the time when you're locked up to learn economics? Join me on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Let's learn economics together. We have the economics course. Macroeconomics has never been as essential to understand. We have the Ask Mac tutorials every other week. We have Q&A. We've got the reading list. And more importantly, you become part of the community. If you have a question, if you have something that's going on, you want to ask me, join me on Patreon. Email in, I will answer your question, but more importantly, it's ad-free. Just you and me and your man across the way. Hey! Patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams and let's figure out the world together.
0: Thirty-six percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a one dollar per month trial period at Shopify.com/work. Shopify.com/work.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands.
0: They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars